I'm Nia Clark, and this is Dreams of Black Wall Street. Be sure you rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps us educate more people about the history we discuss on this podcast and just get the word out about it. heard at the start of this episode is called Great Day Blocks the Looms. It was written by a group of African-American female members of the Amalgamated Clothing Workers of America. The union members were on strike at a local plant in Wilmington, North Carolina at the time. It was recorded by Arthur Miller for the Radio Research Project of the Library of Congress and the United States Public Health Service in the fall of 1941, more than 40 years after the 1898 Wilmington insurrection and coup d'etat. The recording is courtesy of the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. In this episode, we'll delve a bit deeper into the intersection of race, class, labor, and economics as we continue to explore Black Durham, the site of Black Wall Street in Durham, North Carolina. We'll also continue our exploration of the impact the threat of racial violence, particularly the Wilmington insurrection, had on what W.E.B. Du Bois called the upbuilding of Black Durham. As we do so, I want to first turn to someone who knew a great deal about this, the late Dr. Leslie Brown. Brown was a Duke University graduate and a professor of history at Williams College at the time of her untimely passing in 2016. Brown is the author of Upbuilding Black Durham, Gender Class and Black Community Development in the Urban South. Brown was also the winner of the 2009 Frederick Turner Jackson Prize for the best book in U.S. history, written by a first-time author, awarded by the Organization of American Historians. 
Dr. Leslie Brown's work in the classroom motivated students to view themselves as historical actors and to question how they could make contributions to society. From 1990 to 1995, Brown co-coordinated Behind the Veil, documenting African-American life in the Jim Crow South, a collaborative research and curriculum project at the Center of Documentary Studies at Duke. In fact, if you've listened to the preceding episodes of this podcast, you would have heard a number of oral history interviews that were recorded as part of that project, all in an effort to capture the experiences of African-American life during the age of legal segregation in the American South from the 1890s to the 1950s. Next, you're going to hear Brown speaking about that work during part of a lecture Dr. Brown gave on civil rights, movements, chronologies, contexts, and the classroom at Duke University about three years earlier in September of 2013. The event was sponsored by the Duke University Human Rights Center at the Franklin Humanities Institute. This recording is courtesy of the Duke Human Rights Center at the Franklin Humanities Institute. Sometimes she fixed a lot of food. Everybody came by and ate along with us. 
and what we didn't have, maybe somebody else had. Now we've looked to these kinds of things and seen them as, and seen survival mechanisms as forms of resistance, the positive aspects of black community life. But I think we need to pay even closer attention to some of these phrases. Quote, many of these children had to come to school hungry. How bad people were starving. And what we didn't have. So I've come to think that human rights, or rather the tromping of them, uh, was the core intent and most important effect of Jim Crow, making true C. Van Woodward's uh, comment that Jim Crow, the system, intended not only to hold African Americans to a fixed supportive place in society, but to push them further down. And I think this is a compelling point, for in truth, demands for human rights and an end to the violations of them appear across the timeline of black activism. Uh, responses to lynching and sexual violence might be the most obvious of those. Um, and clearly the persistent horrific violence against African Americans, indeed against people of color in the United States, is an impeachable fact. That during the Jim Crow era, and which is the particular area of my own research, whites used violence to enforce discriminatory laws. So it wasn't just that there were segregation laws or discriminatory laws, that they were enforced further uh, by violence. Uh, not only the lynching of black men and the rape of black women, but the abuse of black children, the burning of black schools and churches, the bombings of black neighborhoods, the destruction of black towns, race riots, and random aggressions, all of these assaults and affronts and abuses have been, have been documented historically. And they attest collectively to Jim Crow as homegrown terrorism, as American apartheid that was sanctioned not only by individual whites, uh, but with the complicity of local and state governments by the Supreme Court, the Congress, and the President of the United States. Now, under these conditions, and where Murphy Kelly, Kelly Murphy, uh, makes that point in her book, Right to Rhyme, for African Americans to act and act directly through organized protest uh, in a society where black men and women were hunted like sport, the valiant and popular fight to, dis to defend black citizenship and protest the dignity of everyday life, especially in this context. Um, to speak at all was a radical and dangerous tactic. Next, you're going to hear another Behind the Veil interview this time with a man named William Alexander Clement. 
Clement will discuss his experiences working for North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company, founded and based in Durham, North Carolina, which, you'll recall, grew to become the largest African-American insurance company in the United States. Clement was born in Charleston, South Carolina. From an early age, he knew he wanted to work for NC Mutual. In 1934, Clement went to Durham for a month and a half to do just that. He worked for NC Mutual later in Memphis, Tennessee, also Charleston, South Carolina, Atlanta, Georgia, and finally, he moved back to Durham in 1946, where he spent the rest of his long and prosperous career with the company as a supervisor, agency director, and later an executive vice president of field operations. The interview is part of the Duke University John Hope Franklin Research Center Behind the Veil Project and is courtesy of the Rubenstein Rare Book and Manuscript Library at Duke University. job I ever had in my life. What were some of the things that North Carolina Mutual worked on other than insurance, uh, you know, within the community? What were some well, of the programs? When I came to Durham, the Durham Committee on the Affairs of Black People was organized in 1935. C.C. Spaulding was one of the co-founders of the Durham Committee. George Cox was very much involved with the Durham Committee. And they directed these young people who were coming into Durham to become involved with the Durham Committee. But two weeks after I was in Durham, I was going to the Durham Committee meetings. They were very much involved with that. Mr. C.C. Spaulding was very much involved with the Mechanics and Farmers Bank. He was president of Mechanics and Farmers Bank. He was also very much involved with the Mutual Savings Loan. He was president of Mutual Savings Loan. He was very much involved with North Carolina Central. It was North Carolina College for Durham, for Negroes and Black, where it was in, for Negroes. Negroes in Durham. He and, he and James Shepard were very good friends. Incidentally, James Shepard was one of the original founders of North Carolina Mutual. I imagine you've heard that story. There was John Merrick, Aaron McDuffie Moore, and five other persons in Durham, and James E. Shepard was one of them. When they called a meeting on October the 20th, 1898, the seven met. But they didn't start doing business until the following February, which was in 99. And by that time, uh, James Shepard and some of the others decided they didn't want to, didn't have enough faith and confidence and felt it was going to work. So he had some other interests like education and so forth. But anyway, going back to the question about what North Carolina, North Carolina Mutual was always interested in the total community. And I got involved in the total community of Durham because of their leadership. 
the first board that I was a member of was the Scarborough Nursery School. Yes, I've heard of that. You've heard of that? The Scarborough Nursery School. That's an interesting story in itself. You ought to talk with Skeepy. I don't know whether Skeepy knows that story or not. But his grandfather, J.C. Scarborough, was an undertaker who came to Durham from Clinton, I think, North Carolina, and formed an association with Hoggart. He married into that family. His first wife died, Mrs. J.C. Scarborough, Daisy, I think her name was. He did something I've never heard done before. He established a foundation, the Daisy C. Scarborough Foundation, and he funded that foundation with assets which produced income, and he created the term, the Scarborough Nursery School, really in her, in her honor. This is deceased first wife. Mrs. Clyde Scarborough, who is now his wife, was from Talladega, Alabama, incidentally. She graduated from Talladega in 1923. She became the principal in the moving spirit of that nursery. I stayed on that nursery board for 30 years. It was one of the, it was fun, finally taken over as a United, United Way agency. But it raised its money from the foundation and from a, a sliding scale of tuition. The next was the Durham Committee I got involved. The Durham Committee assignment, and this going back to North Carolina mutual involvement. By the time I got involved, Shag Stewart, John S. Stewart, was the chairman of the Durham Committee. Shag served as chairman of the Durham Committee until he was elected a member of the City Council in 56. Now all these dates I'm giving to you, person who is reading this or listening, need to verify these dates. I'm just popping these dates, but it's close enough to, to if you want to do some additional research to, be, to verify it, you ought to be sure and do that. But John Stewart became a member of the city council in 56, and John Wheeler became then the president of the Durham Committee. John Wheeler had been chairman of the Education Committee. You know the Durham Committee? You know much about the Durham Committee? I've read some on it. Um, what were some of the issues that Well, the Durham involved? Committee was divided into subcommittees, a committee on education, a committee on economics, the civic committee, the health committee, and these committees were assigned these issues to follow up and to be authority on in the event of anything should happen. I was on the Durham Education Committee working with John Wheeler. I was, my wife and I were plaintiffs in the Brown case, I don't know whether you, not the Brown, the Blue case, Blue. the Blue case, which was filed in federal court in 1949. Our daughter 
Alexi was a student at Hillside High School, and that suit was based on separate but equal. We were suing the Board of Education in the city of Durham, certifying and claiming that these black schools were not equal to the whites. And we were plaintiffs. That case was known as the Blue Case. The NAACP became involved. The law firm for the NAACP came down from Richmond. Thurgood Marsh, first time I saw Thurgood Marsh, he was with the Legal Defense Fund of the NAACP. At that time, the Legal Defense Fund and the NAACP were under one umbrella. It was later on that they separated and became two entities. But he came down just to observe that they are never the Johnson Hayes was the federal judge who heard that case. By the time the case came to trial, it must have been about 1941, about 1951. Now that was an interesting case. You need to check that out, whoever's going to do any additional research. The brown case, not pardon me, the blue case, I keep saying the blue, blue. I have in my papers in Chapel Hill, incidentally, I must mention this, all of my papers were turned over, have been turned over to the University of North Carolina Southern Collection, the historical collection. And I'll come back and tell you about that. But anyhow, I'm talking about the blue. I have all of the clippings beginning in 1949, the minutes of the Durham Committee on the Education in my file in Chapel Hill through and inclusive of 1959. The decision in the blue case came down about 1952, close to 53. We won that case. Incidentally, Judge Johnson, he ruled that the City Board of Education was liable, that the schools were not equal, and directed that the facilities be made equal. several episodes of this podcast, we explored Durham, North Carolina's Black Wall Street, as well as the historic and prosperous Haytai community. We discussed the accomplishments of Black Durham's leaders and their integral role in upbuilding Black Durham, despite obstacles that African Americans faced daily in the Jim Crow South. We explored their ability to create and maintain benevolent, transactional, and symbiotic relationships with powerful white elites, as well as the myriad of ways African-American leaders in Durham created opportunities for other people of color in the city that continued to pay dividends for years to come. In the previous episodes, we also began to explore the difficulty of doing this without political representation. After all, Black men had effectively lost the vote due to Jim Crow legislation at the turn of the century, or de jour Jim Crow, as attorney and author Richard Pascal previously stated. 
We touched upon some of the strategies that Black leaders in Durham had to employ in order to continue the upbuilding of Black Durham without political representation, which often involved using their social capital with the white power structure. African Americans in Durham were forced to walk a tight rope of racial advancement while trying to manage not to fall into the tumultuous waters of race-based conflict. A number of Durham's Black elite were perceived by some as being accommodationist in this sense, taking care not to draw the ire of white power brokers in Durham and risk the collapse of productive racial bridges they had built over the years. Though one could also make the argument that the dogged commitment of Durham's Black leaders to the advancement of their race was an act of resistance in and of itself. In other words, Black Durham's leaders used their institution-building skills to resist the racial body politics of the day by promoting African-American progress, largely through social capital and economic prowess, in the absence of significant Black political participation. They did so during a time when African-Americans were consistently lynched for far less. That could be seen as an act of defying the very white supremacist doctrines that necessitated these strategies in the first place. Here to explore this complicated dynamic further is Dr. William Darity, who is the director of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University, a Samuel Du Bois Cook professor of public policy, a professor of African and African-American studies, as well as economics. I'm William Darity. I'm a faculty member at Duke University. I was trained as an economist, and I'm on the faculty in public policy, African and African-American studies, and also I have secondary appointments in the business school and in the economics department. And I'm the director of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke. And most of my work has been about questions concerning inequality, particularly with respect to race and ethnicity in the United States, and especially focused on wealth inequality. Throughout history, it seems as though, as the fortunes of Blacks increased, so did efforts to unravel Black progress. So in your opinion, how did the decades-long and sustained efforts of white North Carolinians to disenfranchise Blacks and stifle Black economic progress, and I should stipulate not all white North Carolinians, but many and enough of them, how did it help shift the model of the New South closer to that of the autocracy of the Old South slave society based on free and cheap Black labor and gender hierarchy? I think there's a a long history extending from the end of the Civil War to the present of the sympathizers with the Confederacy or the proponents of the Confederacy continuing to take steps to try to restrict Black life in the United States. Uh, when, When people talk about this notion of Black Lives Matter as a response to the devaluation of Black lives, the central agents of devaluation have been those who have maintained the spirit and the mission of the of the Confederacy. Uh, and I think it's also evident quite recently 
especially in the context of the attempted coup d'etat that took place on January 6, 2021, that, you know, the Confederacy is very much with us and very much in a position based upon its current proponents to try to impose minority rule in the United States. So, you know, the earlier strategy was to secede from the United States and form a separate country. But now the current strategy appears to be an internal takeover over uh, over the country that would not be consistent with the sentiments of the majority of Americans. So, so in in the southern context, it's no different. And when people introduce this notion of the new south in the late 19th century, I mean, I think in particular it was the editor of the Atlanta Constitution, Henry Grady, who uh, was the person to first articulate this notion of the New South. The idea of the New South was a South that would carry with it all of the trappings of modernity, but there would be there was no no commitment or no intent to to make the New South a place that was fully inclusive of of, of Black Americans as as complete citizens. And in fact, Grady himself was an explicit white supremacist. And so I think it's a little bit odd that anyone thought that when he introduced the notion of New South, he was introducing a notion of new race relations in the South. There are some elements of advocates of the New South who adopted that perspective, but it wasn't until the civil rights era. So the New South was was always intended to be consistent with the racial patterns of hierarchy and stratification that existed in the South prior to the Civil War, but carrying on afterward. That's interesting. How did those efforts manifest in cities such as Wilmington and even Durham? For example, although each city's height of prosperity existed decades apart from one another, each city also experienced prosperity and a semblance of racial cooperation for a time. And that's relative racial cooperation within the context of the time it existed. Um, But ultimately, however, efforts to maintain remnants of the Old South in the New South did cause uh, each city to take two very different trajectories that had major implications for decades to come. So I think in Wilmington, there actually was a process in which there was joint governance between Blacks and whites in positions that were either elected positions or or positions that were appointed by elected officials. And so I think that's somewhat different from Durham, where you did not have a significant presence of Blacks who were involved directly in in the process of holding elected office. And so while you did have the emergence of a very prosperous Black business community, certainly one of the most prosperous in the United States, you did not have the situation that you had in Wilmington in the late 90s, in which not only was there a a prosperous Black-owned business apparatus, there was also a fairly extensive engagement of Blacks holding elected office in the city. I, I think that you, you have an interesting question that can be raised about why there was a violent massacre that took place in Wilmington, but there was not the same kind of massacre that took place in Durham. It may be in part because the rise of Black Durham or the so-called Black Wall Street was something that took place after the Wilmington massacre already had occurred. 
and parties on both sides of the uh, the racial divide in Durham were not eager to have an event like that be replicated there. But we also have a story about the eventual demise of Black Wall Street. In the Wilmington case, or in the case of Tulsa, Oklahoma, for example, prosperous Black business districts were destroyed by violent acts by white terrorists. But the destruction of Black Wall Street in Durham was more strongly associated with the, the, the process of the construction of the federal highway system. And this is something that occurred in multiple cities also, where new highways were actually run through the heart of the Black community, and particularly through the heart of the Black business districts. And that was essentially the death knell for Black Wall Street and Durham, which is in contrast with the death knell for the Black business district in Wilmington, which was conducted by a violent massacre. But I think that there is an important difference between a situation in which Blacks are holding elected office, which was really what infuriated the white supremacists in late 19th century North Carolina, versus a situation in which there's no significant presence of Blacks as elected officials, but there is some measure of tolerance of their efforts to be successful in the business world. I'm wondering your opinion, because as I was, you know, researching, I realized that there were attempts to involve Blacks politically and and get Blacks elected to office in Durham. And and this happened, as you know, even before the Wilmington massacre, Pearson, Aaron Moore, certain leaders in the Black community had tried to convince them to run a couple of times, and each time they declined to do so. And also it happened, as you mentioned, even after the Wilmington massacre, there was certainly no involvement, no Black elected officials in in Durham and and really no effort to get Blacks elected to office in Durham. I wonder if you think that part of the trajectory, the difference in trajectories of these two cities, one being burned down and, and people being massacred, the other not, is because Black folks in Durham opted not to rock the political boat per se. And, you know, I think about when they started having talks about Blacks running for office in Durham, how Black schools started to be burned down in Durham in response. Now, this obviously isn't the kind of violence we saw in Wilmington, but arson is, you know, is, yeah. is arson. <laughs> arson is arson. Yeah. Right. yeah. Well, I mean, it was a pattern, there was a widespread pattern of intimidation, not just in North Carolina, but across the Southern states with the intent of of obstructing Black political participation, particularly in the electoral process. This is a pattern that existed from the period of the decline of the Reconstruction era. And the Reconstruction era was, was deconstructed, if you will, by the white supremacists, again, with high degrees of violence. And so in some communities, clearly, the level of intimidation was sufficient that people would not seek to be active candidates for political office if they were Black. In others, people persisted in trying to pursue that. And they were actually successful in Wilmington because the election of 1898 itself was an election in which the Democrats regained control over the state of North Carolina, elected positions in the state legislature and in many municipal governments throughout the state. But because of the timing of the election and when people had been elected to office in Wilmington, 
you still had a significant presence of black elected officials there. Then you have a coup d'etat that throws them out of office rather than waiting for the next round of the electoral cycle and seeking to defeat them at the ballot. And so I, I would just say that, you know, in some situations, the white terrorist effort did not have to be executed as baldly because folks had been driven out of participating in the electoral process. In other cases where there was an extended presence of blacks who had been elected officials, then there was an even greater likelihood of actual open acts of violence. But we also have to keep in mind that we're, we're talking about the region of the country And this is a phenomenon that also occurred in many of the northern states, but it was perhaps more elaborate or intense in the South. This is a region of the country that had a long lynching trail that extends into the period where the South is trying to characterize itself as being the new South also. The lynching trail completely overlaps with the period of the emergence of the so-called new South. So, you know, I think it's easy to say that that intimidation was 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 a core attribute of white supremacist activity. In some instances, they didn't have the need, in quotes, to resort to more extreme levels of violence than lynchings because the pattern of anticipated violence was so so powerful that folks recognize that their lives would be in jeopardy if they attempted to participate in the political process in an explicit or open way. episode, we also noted that there were other communities in Black Durham, aside from the Haiti community, where Black Wall Street was located, composed of a great deal of African Americans who were not well off like those among Durham's Black elite or middle class. In fact, many African Americans and people of color in Durham were poor or working class and struggled to make ends meet. A large number of them labored in the city's tobacco factories, which grew out of Durham's tobacco-driven economic boom in the late 19th and early 20th century. In the previous episode, we also highlighted how class distinctions between the wealthy or well-off, the poor, and everyone in between in Black Durham mirrored those of White Durham. To that end, while racism produced common denominators in life experiences of Black North Carolinians, class distinctions often determined the degree to which those common denominators impacted the lives of Blacks. Furthermore, gender coupled with class and race factored heavily into those life experiences as well. For example, African Americans were relegated to the most laborious and dangerous work in Durham's tobacco factories. Women working in these factories, however, experienced forms of abuse and maltreatment that were particularly dehumanizing. As Black Durham's de facto representatives, the city's African-American leaders, including John Merrick, Cece Spaulding, and Dr. Aaron Moore, saw it as their responsibility to advocate on behalf of African-Americans of all income levels, not just the well-to-do. Despite all that they had done for their community, Durham's Black leaders were not always able to deliver. For example, 
poor working conditions and poor pay, along with substandard living conditions, caused a number of African-Americans to begin to leave the city, resulting in a labor drain in Durham. Despite calls for improved circumstances, these demands often fell on deaf ears of white employers, many whom considered Black workers to be unintelligent, indolent, and ill-suited for advanced work. Durham's Black leaders tried to appeal to the white elite to address the issues. Leslie Brown highlights these circumstances in her book, Upbuilding Black Durham Gender Class and Black Community Development in the Urban South. She writes, quote, The opportunity to moderate between Black and white residents led Black representatives to approach civic leaders in May 1917. C.C. Spaulding and Aaron Moore met with the Durham Chamber of Commerce to warn that Black labor was leaving the city. Moore used meetings like these to recount his community's grievances. At one chamber meeting, these representatives argued that wage increases might stem the migration. The average wage for Black men was $8 per week, according to Moore. Quote, $2 too little, end quote, to meet a family's basic expenses. For that reason, quote, 1,500 to 2,000 colored people had left Durham in the previous 90 days, end quote. At the governor's meeting on labor, Black leaders noted that their constituents had few reasons to cooperate. Municipalities had ignored the demands and needs of Black neighborhoods. Workers' houses sat on unpaved, unlit streets where the resulting lack of drainage exacerbated the poor sanitation about which white civic leaders complained. Embarking on an educational campaign to, quote, preserve morale and competency of Negro workers, end quote, Moore, as the official spokesperson for the state, asked employers for, quote, greater consideration of their workers, end quote. Among his recommendations were urgent requests for increased wages, improved working conditions, better race relations, and, quote, appreciation, end quote, of the value of Blacks to the state. Quote, since the great majority of Negroes are working class, end quote, he noted in defense of his poorer neighbors, quote, their permanent interests are as laborers, and these interests are in the maintenance of living wages and good working conditions, end quote. Few white employers responded, however, and the frustrated Moore wrote in his final report, quote, until more interest is taken in these meetings by the white leaders and until they are followed by constructive programs for better law enforcement and education, they cannot measurably influence the tendency of the Negro to move. End quote. Here to expound more upon the class dynamics in Durham in greater detail is North Carolina Central University Director of Entrepreneurship at the School of Business and Managing Director of the Eagle Angel Network, Professor Henry McCoy. This season, we're really juxtaposing Wilmington and Durham. You know, it, it made me think when you were talking about the different ways after Black men lost the vote in 1900, after that second white supremacy campaign to the larger one that followed Wilmington, was how did Black people survive? Like, how did they advocate for their needs? It was 
politics, you know, being a part of the body politic, being civically engaged was seen as being their avenue to improving their life, largely through education and economic means. And they didn't have that. Right. And so Mm -hmm. one of the questions is, how did Black people then continue to improve their conditions? And it seems like one of those reasons was to create those stronger ties with white people who were willing to work with them while also not rocking the boat and not doing things to antagonize folks who were dangerous. Oh yeah, well, absolutely. I put it in a context like this. I tell my students sometimes that, you know, NCCU is in the middle of the HI community, right? It's actually probably the most robust of the remaining anchors of the original HI that left. I say, look, this used to be the center of the Black epicenter, right? And they look at me like I'm telling them some ridiculous story. I said, I might as well start out this story with once upon a time, you know, because it seems like a fairy tale. The only problem is that it didn't end happily ever after, right? Because you got to understand now, this is Haiti, right? You know, Haiti used to spell his name H-A-Y-T-I, but then, it, you know, some point in time, Haiti changes spelling the H-A-I-T-I. I mentioned that because, you know, think about the kind of gumption you must have to name yourself after the only democracy started by a former slave or slave revolt in the, in the world, right? I mean, you got to have some kind of sense of your purpose, right? And so I always said that I think that in a lot of ways, the Haiti community considers themselves like an island in the Jim Crow South, right? You, they're surrounded by white oppression, supremacy, and all these kind of things. I mean, and it started out originally after slavery, the Black folks actually they started out by leasing the land and renting the land from white folks. And then so many black folks got over. I guess the white folks look, look, look like they took over. and it, it wasn't the highest quality of land. So, hey, we just sell it to you and we're going about our business. But, you know, there was so much pride in that. And I think that as a function of that, what you ended up with was a community that really was like an island in a lot of places. Right. Now, keep in mind, you know, you, in terms of this idea of how the black people advocate for themselves after something like 1898. Right. Well, part of that was meaning, you know, get on the road and take off up the north. Also, you know, black folk got out of Wilmington. Right. I mean, Wilmington, it took decades for Wilmington to bounce back for black folks. I mean, some of those were run out of Wilmington during the massacre. Now, to your point. You know, interesting enough, there was an interesting body politic in Durham that was different from a lot of places, right? And maybe this is this this whole bridge between John Merrick and Washington Duke and Ben as Barber, whatever the case, but there was this kind of ongoing negotiation that was happening, right, between the two. And so whenever the Black community needed something, they was a lot of times seeing John Merrick over or Aaron Moore over to, to have the conversation with the Duke family, and that would kind of facilitate that. But they also had enough resources within the community that they could do some things themselves. So you end up having a situation where the Black community collectively came together to say, this is what we need. So the Durham Committee on Affairs of Black People, which at the time was the Durham Committee on the Affairs of Negro People originally, was started in 1835. It's the oldest public advocacy group for Black folks in Durham. That's how they kind of collectively came together. And that group would send their leaders over to the white Durham and say, hey, this is what we come up with. Now, keep in mind, now, this is the interesting thing about it. The Durham Committee, founded in 1935, was founded at the Algonquin Tennis Club. So it was really an elitist kind of organization when it started, right? Then two years later, in 1937, the professional business chain was started to talk about business-specific issues. But in Durham, for example, Hillside High School, which is you know very prominent historically Black high school, Hillside High School was the first Black high school in, in North Carolina to get a 12th grade, Right. Now, it sounds really weird because, you know, people say, well, you always assume that a high school has a 12th grade, right? But part of that oppression and suppression was to not have black schools to have a 12th grade because you needed in most places a 12th grade education to get a job in a factory. You need a 12th grade education to go to college. 
So many of the black high schools, the public school system or the school boards didn't allow them to have 12th grade. The Durham schools were, the black schools here were the first school in North Carolina to get a 12th grade. So that was part of the negotiation. Also, they talked about a time walk. They had issues with sidewalks. And so they needed sidewalks for safety reasons. Um, the black folks were able to negotiate with the white, white folks to get sidewalks. So there was really an interesting kind of political setup here. And we talked about this idea of these parallel worlds, this Victorian thing going on. So you ride up and down uh, the heart of black historic Haiti, which is something called Fairville Street, which goes by NCCU and all those kind of things. All the black rich folks had these prominent Victorian style houses that all kind of lined the street. They're still there. They're just at this point, you know, falling apart and things of that nature. And so they really did create a political system here in Durham that was very different than other parts of North Carolina. And that's how the black folks were able to kind of advance here in ways that they did elsewhere. But then, I mean, part of the ecosystem effect that happens is, I mean, black folks came to Durham to look and see what what are y'all doing right? And they would go to other places and say, okay, can we do this? And so it really was a unique kind of model that folks were influenced by and came to be a part of. And again, because it didn't you know, die the death of, of the flames and the bombs like Tulsa, it was able to really create some impact. Now, here's something that I think is important. I get this question all the time, you know, because the height of Black entrepreneurship in the United States was, was up until 1929, right? Right into the Great Depression. So the time before the end was kind of what people consider the golden age or the golden era of Black entrepreneurship. Once the Great Depression hit, of course, that kind of wiped out so many things. And then with the New Deal, Black folks didn't get the equivalent of what white folks got. So it's kind of been a downward spiral in integration and all these kind of things. What we don't know reality is we don't know, we don't have a counterfactual to, you know, what happens if Black and white folks are integrated from the start, meaning that there was so much activity that happened amongst Black folks in Durham and other Black Wall Street because you had everybody living amongst each other, right? It didn't matter whether you're the doctor, the lawyer, the teacher, the, the janitor, you all lived in basically the same community. And so you were kind of forced into a situation to work together. What we don't know is like, for example, these prominent Black families, which, I mean, everything I've seen gives the impression that they really did care about the community, the broader community. But at the same time, I mean, they did have some self-interest, right? So if I want my kid to have a sidewalk to walk on, and I'm one of the prominent Black people, if I wanted my kid to be able to go to 12th grade, then in a lot of ways, you know, I'm advocating for myself and the, and the other folks are part of that equation. And so, you know, it, it speaks to this kind of interesting kind of class and these different struggles in the community that we don't know if given the chance, you know, whether it would have played out that way. But again, I mean, I think they really did care about each other. I will say maybe where that does come into play, this question about what made Durham different. Well, capital made Durham different in terms of money. I mean, literally having money, that made Durham very different than other Black places that may have some nice little economies where they buy from each other. But Durham actually had money, and that ended up having a huge impact on this kind of entrepreneurial ecosystem. And I mention that because what I will say is that No Climb Mutual became really, in a lot of ways, like a venture capital fund for the Black community entrepreneurship. It operates the same way insurance companies operate now, right? I mean, we all have insurance of some kind. We have car insurance, we have home insurance, we have whatever the case Insurance is like, you know, one of those kind of incredible businesses where you pay it with the hope of never having to use it, right? I mean, it's the Warren Buffett model, right? The Warren Buffett model, there's a float that says, I'm going to get your premium today. And based on some economic model, I may not need that principal. I may not need that money to later to pay out some claim, right? Even in life insurance, right? At some point, you're going to die, but hopefully it won't be anytime soon. The float between the time that you give me the premium and the time I have to pay you back, 
I use that to make money on I me. Mean, that's what Warren Buffett is. He invests in Coca-Cola, invests in whatever the case. And that's how insurance still works today. And then they hopefully they make a lot of money and then they, they pay off your claim if you ever need it. Well, NC Mutuals did that same exact thing, right? There's stories about how these black folks would go around, they would knock on the door and they get their dollar a week, you know, premium, this burial insurance, you know, these little small policies. That money came back to NC Mutual. And then you got you got some lag, right? So what do you do with the lag while you got all these premiums? What NC Mutual did was they invested in the black community, they invested in black businesses. So to that extent, there was all these black businesses that would kind of march over to NC Mutual, knock on the door, say, hey, look, you know, I have an idea. I need capital. And, and, and so that was very different than other places. And one of the things that's so fascinating about Durham is that they built on that capital foundation, right? So you went from North Carolina Mutual as kind of this big venture capital firm that invests in the Black entrepreneurial ecosystem. As part of that came out of that was a number of banks, McCancer Farmers being one, Mutual Savings being another. Mutual Savings was a savings and loan set up to help folks buy houses. You had the little dude that disappeared after two years. He was running two kind of financial entities. So there was all these financial entities that built out a financial ecosystem. And that's what really made Durham very, very different than other kind of Black Wall Streets who really were more in the, I say, the consumer business. They would, they would work for white folks largely, bring money across and maybe circulate that money. But that's different from having your own money and, and investing. So, yeah, I mean, Durham was a just kind of a, a special animal. That's an excellent point and absolutely fascinating. So you briefly mentioned, you know, the difference between upper or middle class Black people and lower class, working class Black people. So we do know that the upper and middle class Black folks did try to keep a small circle, you know, marry one another, associate with one another. How did that play out in terms of the dynamics between Black people in Durham? Was there any discrimination based on class or based on, you know, your socioeconomic status? I mean, I think there are a couple of things out of that. So certainly there was a clear line between certain classes, right? But again, everybody lived amongst each other. So it was not the same as we, we have now. And compared to other places, I mean, the, you know, Black folks have family, all kinds of places. And they know that in many places, it wasn't as easy to say, well, hey, can we get some sidewalks? And somebody from the Black community go over and talk to the white folks and they negotiate that, right? They knew that. I think also if you think about kind of the trajectory of the psychology of leadership and things like that, I mean, you can always have people who had kind of conflicts and things like that. But, you know, historically, I mean, we're still talking about during a time whenever people like Theodore Roosevelt and folks like that were icons in, in the community and the Black folks had the same thing, right? Again, the Lincoln Hospital is named after Abraham Lincoln, right? We honored the man who signed the Emancipation Proclamation. I think on a smaller level, you know, Black folks in Durham were captivated by these captains of industry that you had in the Black community, right? And then, as I mentioned also, their wives were these kind of socialites, these pillars of community. So in some ways, a lot of the old class, they revered them, right? And they also, you know, they wanted to be them. I mean, they wanted to kind of, you know, can I become that as well? notes in her book, Upbuilding Black Durham, Gender, Class, and Black Community Development in the Urban South, when Durham's African-American leaders were not able to deliver for their community, particularly for the poor and working class, Black workers took matters into their own hands. For example, 
black tobacco workers became deeply frustrated with low wages and inadequate working conditions. Quote, the Durham newspapers hinted that organized labor activity had begun even as the United States entered the war, end quote. Brown goes on to write, quote, Durham black workers had begun to organize themselves by the time the Tobacco Workers International Union, or TWIU, arrived in the last year of the decade. Affiliated with the American Federation of Labor, the TWIU built on black labor activism to launch a forceful organizing campaign among Durham white tobacco workers in 1919. The union had been operating in Durham on and off since the late 19th century, although the organization adopted resolutions friendly to black laborers in 1897, 1902, and 1917. Its racism excluded black laborers from its ranks for the most part. Black leaders questioned the value of labor organizations for black workers, not only as exclusive organizations, but also as threats to the racial peace between the black and the white elites. During the war, however, black laborers moved into industry in larger numbers. Pressured by African-American labor advocates like George E. Haynes, the American Federation of Labor was convinced that black workers strengthened rather than weakened laborers' hands. End quote. The union's interests, however, were not necessarily aligned with the interests of African-American workers. Quote, the TWIU, however, stood to gain from the racial conflict. Union officials understood that black labor organizing and labor concessions generated passion among whites who resented any gains that black workers might make. The TWIU, sharing corporate perceptions of black workers and viewing white labor as its more critical element, stimulated rivalries between the black and white locals. Arguing that blacks were getting ahead, the union encouraged white workers to organize in response, end quote. Durham's black leaders, ever wary of doing anything to make the city's white elite angry, pushed back against efforts of black laborers to organize and unionize. Quote, black leaders may have agreed that workers deserve better wages and conditions, but they were reluctant to support any efforts that raised the ire of whites. Moreover, they shared a distrust of unions with other black leaders, knowing that only when it was to white workers' advantage did labor unions pay any attention to black workers' problems. The elite eschewed black tobacco workers' activism in any case, believing it smacked of Bolshevism, or even worse, the racial disquiet they sought to allay. Rather anxious about deteriorating race relations following the armistice, members of the black elite responded to rumblings about labor action with a series of mass meetings in Durham, black communities, where they preached, quote, good feelings between the white and colored races, end quote, and blamed, quote, outsiders, end quote, for the unrest among blacks. Union activity faded by the mid-1920s, but not because of black leaders' intervention or efforts to discourage it. Instead, as the post-war economy slowed tobacco production, all workers faced reductions in hours and pay and layoffs. Neglected, disregarded, and trumped, its membership facing unemployment, Black unions dissolved in Durham. End quote. Years later, Black tobacco workers in Durham were able to more successfully organize, unionize, and fight for better pay and working conditions. 
You're about to hear one such experience from a man named Horace Mims, who was interviewed in 1994 as part of the Duke University John Hope Franklin Research Center Behind the Veil Project. The eventual success Mims and his colleagues experienced was, of course, born out of the struggle and resistance to inequality of Black laborers in Durham years before. The interview is courtesy of the Rubenstein Rare Book and Manuscript Library at Duke University. My name is uh, Horace Mim, <coughs> Durham, North Carolina, and uh, <coughs> I began working at the American Bank Company in 1942. In August of 1942, up until um, April of '81, and uh, during the time when I first started began working there, see, it was very segregated at that time, and. Uh, the salary, I don't care who you was or what education you had or whatever, you still start at the bottom. Now, just like, for instance, me and a white guy, we was hired the same day, neither one of us had never had our foot inside the plant. Now, they're going to start him off a nickel more for hours than they did me. So, uh, these are some of the things that we had to contend with. And, you know, down through the years. What, what, what salary did you? Well, at the time when we started out, it was 25 cents an hour. And uh, so uh, that lasted for quite a few years. I mean, you got to raise every three months, two or three cents of per hour. And uh, during the war, just like I said, during the war, our wages were froze. We couldn't make over 60 cents an hour. That was the limit, 60 cents an hour. And uh, it, it was it was a job though. That's 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 the main thing. It was a job, and a lot of people said now when we begin to talk about what we had to go through, they begin. It's a lot of young people like you, and you know a lot of people. I'm just telling you for now. So they said I wouldn't have did that, but we didn't have no other choice. We had to fight. We had to fight for this, and we had a union. We had two unions: a white union and a black union. And working for the same company. What were the names of those unions? Uh, we had AFL and CIO. And uh, so uh, when we got ready to negotiate a contract, now the white union they would go in first and negotiate. Then we'd have to come behind and take what was left. And I think you can get an idea of what I'm seeing in, in this respect. And that went on for quite a few years, but we started fighting. And um, in, 40, well, in, in 43, we had to go out on strike. And uh, they couldn't strike without the black people. You know, as I said, at that time we had two unions. So they could not strike unless we went along with them. So What was, what was, what was some of the things that, that started that strike? Well, for, uh, for uh, wages, you know, to increase our wages and working conditions and whatever, you know. And uh, so finally we all we agreed that we would all go out together. And uh, this was on the beginning 
of us merging the union. So uh, that went on, I think, it was around about, uh, I believe it was somewhere around about 58 or somewhere along that would be a uh, merged union, we put all union together, you know, just one union, FO and CIO. And uh, we were represented by, you know, the AFL and CIO, see that's the big union, auto works and all of them is in that union. And this is one way that we made some progress. And it might seem funny to some people, and I, I, a lot of this, I'm, 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 I have to go back sometime, you know, to, uh, because, see, this has been years and years ago, because I've been retired for 13 years. And uh, during that time, just to let you know some of the things we had to go through in order to achieve what we have today, uh, we had segregated cafeterias. One side over him, you know, was white and one side was black. And I mean, this is some, some of the things that we had to fight for. Was this at work? It, it, it worked at school. I mean, it worked at the factory where I work. I'm just, I'm just, I'm filling in from, from the, from the factory, see, from, from where I worked at the American, what we had to go through, what, uh, and, uh, see, we had a white cafeteria side. Of, it was in the same building, on the same floor, but this side and that side. And, uh, so, uh, we fought for that you know, to correct that. And what I hate about some of our black people, at that time we see the same thing now. They were still, didn't want, you know, they, 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 they just would not, they all still would get, come to, right together. And we had the whole big area cafeteria, but you find a whole bunch of, all them black guys, most of them, they'd be right over here in this one little group. And we tried to get them, you know, to just to mingle around because they were still segregating themselves. And uh, as I say, we, we fought for that and everything and we began to uh, get a little more uh, raised and everything, began to, the jobs were classified. We had to go to school, black people had to go to school if you wanted to be a plumber, uh, whatever mechanic or whatever the case might be. And this is one way we got, um, as it's classified a job. And, uh, and that gave, the black people gave us a chance, you know, to go to school um, right on the job there. They had training right on the job there. And uh, so this is some of the ways that we, you know, close the gaps on. And at one time, and I, I'm not putting it, but at one time, did you know we couldn't go in the same door? You have to have a, seeing that uh, this is the way we got some progress and everything. And uh, it might sound funny, just like I say, but we had to go in this door. Now, the white could come in the same door we went in, but I couldn't go in that door where they went in. And we fought, we fought for that. And uh, so we had to run on another strike in 68. And at that time, things were beginning to put shape up pretty good. Uh, okay. And the way that we was all, you know, the job was classified, they, they couldn't pull, uh, take a white person and just put him on this job, you know, electrician or mechanic or uh, machinist or whatever. And uh, so uh, everything kind of began to kind of fall in place in that way. 
and been up. And it's one thing, now I cannot, it, it was a livelihood and everything. And uh, now we, when I first went to work there, you didn't have no insurance, no retirement, no kind of benefit. You, if you, I've seen people work there with 80 years old and they had to quit because they worked until you got so you couldn't work. But in the end, we came out, we got the insurance. A couple of years later, we got uh, retirement. A percentage, you know, for whatever your salary was, that's what your retirement percentage was. And uh, in 1960, we started profit sharing. Whatever your salary was for that year, whatever they profit they made from, you know, from your salary, that's what your profit sharing was. And uh, you could draw it every year. Uh, either you could wait and just draw whenever, you know, whenever you wanted to. Because I choose to draw mine when I retire. And the most of them, you know, choose to draw theirs when they retire. Because at that time, we, we was, you know, our salary had increased a lot. But, so, uh, but in the end, every, everything worked out all right. But as I say, we had um, a struggle. And that, that is the way life is. You have to fight. You, you don't just, it's nothing going to be handed to you. super excited about the next episode. You're going to hear from a few living descendants of several of the most prominent leaders of Durham's Black Wall Street and Haytai community. And if you've got some time, check out the Renaissance English History Podcast, one of the longest continuously running indie history podcasts, sharing stories of Tudor England since 2009.